Hello, everyone, and welcome back to You Creates Podcast, Many Different Birds, broadcasting on CJSW Radio, where we will hear authentic stories from special guests from all backgrounds and bridge the gap between non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities, with a special focus on the Canadian healthcare system. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, the Bigani, and the Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Good Stony First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Carrie Moore is a Cree Métis elder who is also an integrative psychotherapist working in private practice as a consultant, educator, spiritual advisor, and trauma therapist. Carrie specializes in holistic therapies and combines her clinical social work education with spiritual and alternative practices. She is also involved with many sustainability projects around campus. We are honored to have her guidance and support in the initiation of this project. Thank you for joining us today, Carrie. We are super excited to have you here. I'll pass it on to you so you can share a little bit more about yourself and talk about today's discussion on trauma and wellness. Prior to the recording of this podcast, Elder Carrie Moore had performed a smudge. We smudge. We smudge in a way where we are trying to come from our head into our spirit. In our spirit is where we carry our love and our kindness, our respect, our compassion, our accountability. In our head is where we carry our behaviors. So when we're speaking about wellness, when we're speaking about the environment, we look at everything around us and how that creates the behaviors that we see. So we as Indigenous people do not see people as the issue. We see that what is happening in the environment creates the behavior. We are just another species on Mother Earth. Mother Earth takes care of all of us. And each species has their own way of taking care of each other and everyone else. So the act of generosity and sharing is part of everything on Mother Earth. And everything on Mother Earth always remembers who they are. The only species on Mother Earth that forget who they are are human beings. And so the reason we smudge is we gather medicines like sage, which is what we get here in Treaty 7 territory. Treaty 6 territory as well, where I am from. And we know, because Mother Earth never forgets who she is, we want her to help us connect to our spirit so we remember who we are again. So we begin every meeting, every day, everything that we do with smudge. And smudge isn't just an action. Smudge is a deep intention of connecting to values we carry that are found deep within our spirit. So when we take that breath, now we know who we are. 
And this world is very much in need of knowing who we are. We live in a world which is very much about what we think and what we look like. And those two are part of what we are. But the most important part of who we are as human beings is who we are and how we feel about the world. And so when we pick this medicine, we put that tobacco down, which is what you have given me, that tobacco, to ask for that respect and to acknowledge my words. When we give tobacco to the plants too, we take that tobacco and we put it down on Mother Earth and we say, thank you. I ask that you come with me to help me. And our creation stories talk about how the tobacco plant came forward and said, um, I will give myself to the two-legged, the human beings, so that when they need to remember who they are, they will ask us to help them. And so we put that tobacco down before we pick our medicines, and we never pull anything by the roots. Because when you pull things from the roots, you pull them out of their families, even plants, not just animals and humans. All things grow in families. And their spirit is located in their roots. And they talk to each other. And you will always see plants growing together in families. Human beings carry our spirit in our belly button. And so we know that this plant never forgets who she is. But if we were to pull her by the roots without offering her that tobacco, she would go into trauma, just like human beings when they are pulled from their roots, especially children. So this beautiful sage plant, we picked her with love and kindness. We left her roots in the ground so that she will always be there with her family and grow again next year. And so I take a little bit of this smudge and I'm going, it's a, a sage plant, and I'm going to light it, and I'm going to do a blessing for all of us. And this is for us to begin in a good way, but it's also for what you're planning to go forward doing uh, with your podcast. It's about creating the space to do everything in a good way. So when we allow this beautiful sage to rise, she's looking for us. And so we reach out, and we reach out to you. And we wash ourselves, or cleanse ourselves, or smudge ourselves in order to get rid of all of those things that are stuck to us, that are of no value to us anymore. Our anger, our sadness intolerance, our jealousy, whatever those things are that are not coming from our spirit. And when we take that breath, we come down into our spirit and now we remember who we are again. Love, kindness, respect. So let me offer this blessing to all of us now that we've smudged, now that we are in our spirit. Creator, giver of all life, grandmothers and grandfathers of all four 
directions. Mother Earth. Do see it so walking the heat in the square. He done. Nico Chi, he's the love. My name is Carrie. We're truly grateful for this day, Creator. We're truly grateful for all of the things you bring us every day. Today, the snow will cover Mother Earth and bring nourishment to her. We ask, Creator, that you keep us safe today on the roads and keep us safe no matter where we may be. Watch over our families and our communities. Keep them safe. May they be surrounded by love and kindness. And we ask that our love and kindness reach out into the universe for those that may not be well, for those that may be in grief, for those that may be in war. They will feel our good intentions and that those intentions will give them hope to keep going in a good way. We're truly grateful for the work you've given all of us to do, Creator. We ask that you bring us the resources that we need. We're truly grateful for the blessings that we receive every day. And we ask that you continue to watch over us and protect us. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here with all of you today. I am an elder here um, at the Faculty of Social Work. I'm also an elder with the University of Calgary. And you're right, I'm very passionate about wellness and sustainability. And so let me just tell you a bit about myself. I'm originally from Treaty 6 territory uh, near uh, Prince Albert. And I have been in Alberta now for 49 years. I am an elder with the Métis Association uh, of Calgary, Region 3, as well as with Calgary Board of Education and uh, the University of Calgary. I am a psychotherapist, yes, and a consultant and an educator. And um, I came into social work very late in my life. I was 50, and I came into social work uh, because as an Indigenous woman, I really didn't see a lot of things that I knew helped me out there to help other people. And social worker is, workers are one of the groups of people that are out there helping people wherever we are. And I wanted to really impart my ways of knowing, being, doing, and connecting to other uh, social workers and, um, and learn myself how to work within two worlds since we have to recognize how to create a parallel process. And so that was why I came to university and got my master's degree. And uh, now I'm still here teaching and providing uh, counseling and providing research and all kinds of things. And all that has to do with wellness. But I'm particularly, uh, in, I think what's in particularly important is that here in Treaty 7 territory, um, we as Indigenous people know how to create wellness, but we don't see it very often. And so I think it's important to recognize that all people who come to Canada, no matter where people come from, 
bringing their own ways of knowing, being, doing, and connecting. It's very similar to ours. But the people in Canada have the understanding and the songs and the vibration and the languages. Uh, we know how to create wellness and balance. And so part of being a social worker is really to teach other people that we don't need people telling us how to do things. We need people to ask us, how do you create wellness? And on that point, I will say thank you to you for asking me how I do that. And I've been doing this now for over 40 years. Um, and I, I, I want to see sustainability, which is part of what we all want to see uh, here at the university and everywhere, sustainability and wellness. And one of the things that first things that I look at is when people use the term mental health. Human beings are more than their mental health. Human beings are holistic or whole beings. And that goes for all people, not just Indigenous people. And so what does that mean exactly? What it means is we are spiritual, emotional, physical, and cognitive beings. And when we come from a place of trauma, and I would probably say that most of us in our in our life, perhaps not us, but our ancestors, came from trauma. Because people come to Canada because they're trying to find a better life. They're trying to get away from persecution. They're trying to get away from war. And so many, many people in Canada who are coming from other places are coming with their own trauma as well. And if we don't get this right, we're not going to see resilience and that's what I do not see in the world. And I hear a lot of people say to me, well, we create resilience by creating this program. We create resilience by helping people. I would say that sometimes that's true. But what I am seeing is adaptability more than resilience. And so at a university level, we have to recognize we have people from many different places in the world here that are coming here to learn something, to make this world a better place. That is what our ultimate goal is here. And we don't make this world a better place by the courses we take. We make this world a better place by the people we really are. And who human beings really are, are loving, kind, responsible, compassionate, accountable, generous, caring human beings. All of us have that in common. And trauma takes us out of our spirit where we carry those beautiful values, which we say in your belly button. And I know when I say that, a lot of you might be hearing this and saying, gee, we have a practice where we're supposed to be in our belly button too. It's a universal truth. We don't necessarily say that as Indigenous people, let's get into your belly button. We talk about getting into your spirit. Well, our spirit resides in our belly button. That's where we carry the beautiful values that all human beings carry. In the process, however, of trauma, of colonization, which creates tremendous trauma, the first thing that happens to us is that we're pulled out of our spirit 
And it's the children that are traumatized. The adults fight. So what does a child know about survival? Because children don't have a lot of coping methods. They rely on adults to protect them, to keep them safe. And when you're in a situation where you're separated from adults or you're separated from those people that were caring people and they have no way of protecting you because they're in danger too, then you're going to look for the people that have power around you as children. And you're going to watch them. And you're going to figure out how you're going to stay safe in that environment. And that is the moment in time where you get pulled from your spirit and you start to come up into your head to try and think your way through what is happening. But the reality is about trauma is that we don't, we can't um, find a way of peace and balance in our life unless we're in our spirit first. And so we are taught as nurses, as doctors, as psychologists, social workers, whatever the helping professions are that we're in, we're taught about cognitive everything. And certainly our cognitive place is one of those dimensions of being. But if we have trauma, we can't think. And so everything that we do in the world is based on what do you think? You're working with people that are coming from trauma within their environment now because that trauma gets passed down. Trauma will be passed down forever until we step in ourselves and change what we're ha what's happening in our environment. Because if you've experienced trauma all your life as a child, you're going to grow up with the same trauma behaviors of the people around you. So trauma is a learned experience as well as an epigenetic one. So we do know from the science of epigenetics, we always called it blood memory. We knew as indigenous people, our ways of knowing are over a thousand years old. What we do to heal is a protocol, it's not a theory anymore. So when we look at epigenetics, that is the science that discovered that you could pass down trauma for seven generations at least. We've always known that. And so you can inherit behaviors of trauma even if you're living in an environment that isn't trauma. And this is the confusion about people and dealing with trauma, because not many people understand that. We, we start trying to change people's minds, giving people cognitive behavioral therapy in order to try and help us think our way through things, find solutions. But the reality is, if you have trauma, you can't think. You can only think when you're in your prefrontal cortex. And when people have trauma, even if they haven't experienced it in this generation, but they have the behaviors of trauma that have probably been passed down to them ancestrally for seven generations, somewhere in there. And if that should happen to you, and if you don't learn any other way of living or knowing, you will carry those behaviors, which are anger, anxiety, and depression throughout your life. And guess what? You'll pass it on to your own kids. Because if that's all you know, that's all you can teach. 
So the idea of trauma is much broader than trauma-informed practice. I haven't seen one yet that really talks to this. Trauma-informed practice is a good place to start, I guess. But we have to recognize that we can't start helping and healing people through cognitive methods first. That's the last place we go. We have to start with the spirit first. Because when you are in your spirit, a miracle happens. You automatically drop into your prefrontal cortex. And now you can think. Now you can solve problems. Now you can build relationships. Now you can do multitasking. Now you can focus. You can't do any of those things unless you're in your prefrontal cortex. And that's just above your eyebrows, if any of you are wondering what I'm speaking about. So what happens in trauma is we get this signal from our environment that something may not be quite right. And it's through our senses. So our senses get us into trauma. Only our senses are going to get us out of trauma. So very simple, right? We, we hear all kinds of things about trauma in many different ways. But the reality is that here's the simple understanding of trauma. Whatever is happening in our environment, what we smell, what we hear, what we taste, what we see, what we feel, both tactilely and intuitively, will determine whether we are in trauma. And it is an automatic response to your environment. We have no control over that, by the way. So if you hear a loud noise, automatically you jump. And that's the cortisol levels that are increasing in your body. Very important cortisol, adrenaline, all of those different, what we call uh, neurotransmitters, hormones. But they're actual chemicals that are released in your body to help you do everyday tasks. And one of those things that happens is that we have an automatic response to what is happening in our environments through our senses. So... Anything that is happening around us, if your body perceives that as danger, you will automatically go into trauma. This is why it's difficult to heal trauma. People think, you know what, you're not in, you're not in a trauma environment right now. You need to get over your anger. It's that simple. Because if you've never learned that your anger may be trauma, you'll just think that it's part of your life. You'll say, gee, I have a lot of people in my family that have trauma. That's normal. So our behaviors of trauma become normalized in the world we live in. And if you look around you, it's not just indigenous people who have trauma. I laugh about that. You will see human beings everywhere, all around you, who have trauma. Just look at the world. Look at the world now and see the anger out there. See the sadness out there, the anxiousness. So what happens in trauma is that we get these alarms that are automatic. Uh, they They start right at the base of the brain and they move upwards into your prefrontal cortex. It doesn't happen at the prefrontal cortex and move backwards. It happens at the bottom, the base of our spine. 
And in that moment, we have a reticular activation system there that even works when we're sleeping. So um, we'll wake up because we hear a loud noise or we will wake up because we smell smoke. That doesn't always happen, mind you. But um, we will be woken up because even when we're sleeping, our reticular activation system is still on. And so we react to what is happening in our external environment to determine whether we are safe or not. And we have no control over that. So when you're a child, think about this, and you experience trauma in your life, and you have no coping methods, you have no adult who's there to whisk you away to safety, what do you know? Nothing. You have no coping methods. So the younger you are when you experience trauma, the harder it is to heal it. Because when you're an adult, you have a tendency to already have coping methods. I know what to do when I hear a loud noise. Ah, I can run. I know when I smell something, I know what different smells are, and I can tell if that's a burning house or is it if it's a cigarette. So as, as we get older, our brain actually uh, adopts different coping methods. We create more neural connections in our brain, which says, if this happens, this is what you do. And so we have sometimes a way to get away from danger because we've had an understanding through past experiences as adults to get us through it. Or somebody's told us, or somebody, or we've read about it, or we've seen it somewhere. So the most difficult, the, the most difficult trauma is the trauma that children experience. And children may experience trauma in an environment in two ways. One is through their epigenetics because it's passed down to you. And the second way is through the environment that you're living in. So if your parents experience trauma in their lives and they've never had uh, it resolved in their lives, they are going to carry those trauma behaviors into their relationship with everyone. And so the three behaviors associated with trauma are anger, anxiety, and depression. And all of what I call the subtypes attached to it, like lateral violence, bullying, jealousy, all of those, those very difficult behaviors that we have. We don't want them, by the way, but and we don't know why we have them necessarily. But if we have unresolved trauma, we carry the behaviors of trauma. And we don't adopt all three of those behaviors. You should be adopt one more predominantly than the others. doesn't mean that we're not going to experience all three behaviors at some point in our life. All of us are going to experience anger, anxiety, and depression because of what's going on in our life. It's when people carry it every day. Now, if you're living in trauma, you are going to carry it every day. But if you're not in trauma anymore, you've left the environment, you've understood that, um, and you still have raging anger for no reason. Somebody drops a cup and you jump and you become very angry. That's not normal behavior. 
that is trauma behavior. And that's when we start to look at some of these behaviors, how they really get in the way of building relationships, for example. They really get in the way of us keeping jobs. They really get in the way of us uh, being able to live in the world without maybe getting into trouble with the law or without coping with things. Um, you can't blame people for coping with their anger when it gets in their way or their depression it's so bad or their ang anxiousness is so awful they can't leave their home. Those are behaviors that we adopted as children or as adolescents primarily and without resolving them we carry them into adulthood and until we learn something new, those behaviors won't go away. So cognitive behavior doesn't help when you have trauma. You have to work with the behaviors first, starting in connecting people to their spirit so that they know who they are. Because when you are connected to your spirit, however you may do that, deep within your belly button, that's where your love and your kindness and your respect and your honesty and all of those beautiful values are. We call that our authentic self. And I can tell you that I know people, when I talk to them about being in their authentic self, tell me, you know what? I don't think I've been in my authentic self for a long time. So if we want to create healing in this world, we can't do it with the cognitive first. We have to be able to connect people to their spirit. That is where their authentic self is. When you're connected to your spirit, no one can control you. When you're connected to your spirit, you can think. Because when you connect to spirit, that miracle happens. You drop into your prefrontal cortex. Now you can go to university. And you can study. And you can read. And you can learn. And you can build relationships and you can be successful. I see many students dropping out of school and they drop out of school because of the trauma they're coming from. And there's nothing around them that makes them feel safe. And you might say, what do you mean, Carrie? There's lots of things at the university that make you feel safe. Yes, I think people have great intentions of creating safety everywhere and I see it. But people have to believe it. People have to build a relationship with those spaces and places around, those ethical spaces around, where they can build a relationship with that space. Because if you don't build a relationship with that space, you're not going to feel safe in that space. And the way that we look at trauma today is based on, you just need to be able to get through this through many different ways. Um, but we don't think of the spirit as a place to do that. So, I'm an Indigenous person, so what do I do? And I work with people who aren't just Indigenous. I work with people from many, many diverse groups. And I always connect people to their spirit first, however that looks to them. To us as Indigenous people, we begin with that smudge. We begin with that blessing. And we come down, we take that breath deep within our belly button. You have to take a breath, you can't hold your breath. You must take that breath and come down into your belly button and relax your shoulders. You have to feel your breath in your belly button. However you do that, some people do mindfulness or meditation or yoga 
or walking or music or art, all of those are wonderful ways to come down into your belly button. We as indigenous people smudge and we take that breath and we take that beautiful medicine from Mother Earth because Mother Earth never forgets who she is. Only human beings forget who they are. So we ask her to help us. So we bring that smudge and we smudge ourselves and we take that breath and we do that prayer. And all of a sudden, we're ready for the day. We're in that place of safety because we can't be safe unless we're in our belly buttons. And then we can go throughout the day learning what we need to do. And when we get up in our head and it bothers us, we take that breath come back down into our belly button again. We have to do it over and over and over again because there's a lot of things that are stressful around us, a lot of things that bother us, a lot of thoughts that we have about missing our friends and our families. All of those things bring you up to your survivor brain, which is right in your midbrain. And that's where you stay until you find something to bring you down into your belly button. And when you're in your belly button and you really are at peace, then you can start to do trauma, oh, trauma work. But you can't do it until you have come into your spirit first. So here we are at a university, very progressive, one of the top universities in the world. What would I say about how would we make this the absolute best university in the world? We do it by creating whole beings. We do it by not just making academic success the most important thing. It's important, yes. But is it the most important? Because I know that we come here to learn all kinds of things, to be of service to the universe in many different ways. Architects and nurses and social workers and educators and all of those incredible fields of study that we go into. But those are just fields of study. We use our skills to be the best architects or the best social workers. But unless you know who you are, Unless you really know who you are and can get into your spirit where your love and your kindness, where your respect and your honesty and your compassion is, you're not going to be successful. And I know some of you are saying, what? I got the highest marks in my class. That's fantastic. But unless you know who you are, people aren't going to believe you. So to be the most successful people on earth, you have to know who you are. You have to know how to be in your spirit. And you use the skills you have to make this world a better place, but you can only drive it with your spirit. If you want people to believe you, if you want people to trust you, you have to know who you are or they're going to walk away from you. So this university, when we think of wellness and sustainability, the word mental health is so frightening to so many people. I know people 
that won't go near any place that says mental health counseling because it alarms them to think that they might have a mental health issue because there's so much stigma attached to people who have mental health issues. In my opinion, we should never use that word. Wellness incorporates spiritual, emotional, physical, and cognitive wellness. So we really need to look at how we're going to get people in to help to get help. I know it's hard for people to go and get help, but if they know that they're going into a wellness center, they're far more capable of going into a wellness center than they are into a mental health center. And I think we have to look at that um, in our in our university and in the places in our hospitals, everywhere that we look. If we really want to help people, we have to use the right language. And mental health is only one part of us. Wellness includes the whole being, spiritual, emotional, physical, and cognitive being. So we have to really, when we're looking at what's going on with people in the environment, how do we help them? Well, we don't help them by working on their brain first. We help them by looking at what happened to create the behaviors, not what's wrong with you. We have to get beyond the what's wrong with you piece because there's nothing wrong with us. Something happened to us to create the behaviors that we have every day or whenever something comes up for us. Uh, we might have a behavior that's just not suiting us well. And remember those behaviors of trauma, our anger, anxiety, and depression? Well, lots of what I hear, mental health, have those three behaviors attached to them too. So it's important to rule out trauma first before we diagnose people. Because in my opinion, from my practice, and I work with a great many people in my practice who are misdiagnosed, the first thing that happened to them when they had this raging anger and were involved with perhaps domestic violence, which is a horrible thing. And they would say to me, Carrie, I, I, I don't, I know all about what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know how to stop my anger. How do I stop my anger? It's not something I can turn off. It's spontaneous. And so when people are involved with trauma at some point in their life or somewhere through the epigenetic passage and trauma uh, has happened and perhaps you had a grandmother who was somewhere like residential school and she learned to fight to survive and the more repetitive your trauma is the more repetitive it is the more it will stay with you so if she had a repetitive trauma for several months, maybe for several years, where she had to fight her way out of everything, we know that trauma actually uh, creates a change uh, often within us. And we get so much cortisol that is released because we're in danger. And we don't have that time between that, that experience to allow our cortisol to come down. That's why we go, <sighs> we take that breath. 
Because when you take that breath and come down into your belly button, something else happens. Our cortisol levels come down. And our and so we have to recognize that our cortisol levels come up to help us run, fight, and flee. Those are the three basic behaviors of trauma. And attached to that is anger, anxiety, and depression. So when we are living in an environment that has so much trauma, we have to be on alert at all times throughout the day. Our trauma levels never come down. What does that mean? It means that our cortisol levels never come down. And when your cortisol levels don't come down, they become toxic to you after a while. So toxic that now you have this spontaneous behavior, anger, anxiety, or depression, but you also start to develop all kinds of health issues because it's not just the brain, it's the body. And so you get a lot more. We see people with trauma that is a a continual trauma, not a one-time event. Trauma that's a one-time event is usually easier to support. Not always. It depends on what the trauma is. But I'm talking about repetitive trauma that happens in your environment as a child, continues on, and you pass it down, and it keeps going from one generation to another generation. So we know that our ancestors passed down their trauma to us. We also know that they passed down the good things too, and the skills. So somebody might not get that trauma, but your brother might. And maybe your child will. But it's important to know that until we learn a new behavior, that trauma is going to stay with us. And we're going to keep creating trauma for our families. The behaviors we have. The normalized behaviors of trauma, anxiety, and depression that are continual, they never go away. Or they go away for only short periods of time. By the way, when I talked about cortisol, people who are suicidal have a hundred times more cortisol in their body than anyone else. Think about that. When you're so overwhelmed in your life, and you've been so overwhelmed for a long time, and you have so much cortisol that is coursing through your body and it can never turn off because you have to have times in your life where you take that breath and relax so your cortisol levels can come down and go back to normal. So when you have so much cortisol in your body and you're feeling so terrible, it takes a lot to support people who are suicidal. Where do we get that from? Trauma. So, even if you don't have trauma in this life, maybe you live in a wonderful life, and I hope you all do, but somehow you have such extreme anxiety, you just can't leave your home. Well, extreme anxiety is one of those behaviors of trauma that may have been passed down to you to someone who had to hide from trauma all their life. Fight, flee, freeze, creates anger, anxiety, or depression. So the behaviors that you adopt to protect yourself as a child, as an adult too, manifest themselves in certain behaviors. And so 
When we try to get someone to come out of their house, for example, they just can't leave their home. They may not know why, because the trauma may be coming from another generation. And that's why when we're looking at trauma, we have to look at the story of people, not the diagnosis of what are the behaviors first. Tell me your story. We ask about the stories of people, and we go back three generations at least to find out where you came from. What happened? How did you get here? How do you protect yourself? And in that story, we can determine whether people are coming with trauma from another generation. Because we might say to you, I don't know why I'm so anxious. Nobody else in my family has, is anxious. But in the story, they might tell you about how their great-grandfather lived out in the bush and he chose to live in the bush away from people and he could hardly ever leave his house even when people came to visit him he wouldn't come outside and we didn't realize that he might have been highly anxious we just thought he was what we call a hermit so it manifests itself in many different ways to people but trauma is one of these horrible things that can happen to us. But here's the good news. Trauma is curable at any point in your life. Mental health issues, especially personality disorders, are treatable, but they're not curable. So when I work with people who have been given a diagnosis sometimes, not always, sometimes they do have mental health issues. But most of the people who come to see me tell me they have extreme anger, or clinical depression, or, or acute anxiety, and they're taking medication for it, and they're trying to get help, and just isn't helping for any length of time. I look at what happened to that person in their ancestral lineage to determine whether or not Maybe trauma is why they have these things, not a mental health issue. So we have to be careful because trauma is totally curable at any point in your life. But in order to cure it, you have to find another way of living your life and you have to understand it first. You can't just start doing support for people because they have depression or anxiety or anger. Start doing work with them. You have to figure out where that's coming from. Why? What happened? So that they understand it. So the very first piece, when people come through that story of trauma and tell you that trauma and you find it out somewhere is, you have to help people understand, ah, so you got this anger from your great-grandfather. It's not your anger. Do you have any reason to be angry now? No. So we have to recognize that it's important for people to know why they're angry before you can actually work on it. It doesn't help just to say, okay, you've got anger, let's work on it. Why? And it's really important for people to know why they have behaviors. Where did they get them from? And so we talk about it through story. And so 
How I do an assessment for people with trauma is I ask about their story first. Tell me your story. Tell me what happened. Do other people have these behaviors in your family? Do you get angry all the time? Do you get angry if someone looks at you in a wrong way? Are you anxious and you can't go to school? What happened? Is there something that happened in your environment? Well, tell me about, tell me about your family. What happened to your grandparents, your auntie, your great-great-grandparents? Where did they come from? What happened? Why did they come to Canada? What happened? So, we have to know why we have those behaviors of trauma, anger, anxiety, and depression. And we have to recognize that those behaviors also can be diagnosed as mental health issues. But unless you rule out trauma, maybe you're diagnosing people and they don't really have those things. And until you heal the trauma, whatever whatever um, therapy you're using is probably not going to help until you rule out all of those things. Cognitive behavioral therapy is very effective for people if they've worked through their trauma first, if they know where they got it from, if they understand that it's been given to them by someone else, it's not really theirs. Because if they're living in an environment where there's no trauma, then you can heal that. What about if they're still living in an environment with trauma, though? That's why we look at what's happening in the environment to create the trauma. It's not about the individual anymore. What's it about? It's about looking at the behaviors that you have of trauma that have been given to you because of what's happening in the environment. So we have to figure out how do we heal that environment so that the family and the community can heal, not just the individual. If we support that individual and they go back into their community, their brain, well, all of our brains are pretty lazy. Our brains love routine. So we can take people out of an environment and we can teach them something new. By the way, your brain won't change unless you're successful doing something new either. So you take people out of an environment for a while, maybe, maybe because they're in addictions. And they're in addictions because they have trauma and they're trying to cope with what they don't want to have. And you do trauma treatment with them in that addictions. That's the way it should be. Let's work on the whole being, not just the addictions. And... Um, that person realizes that hmm, the trauma came from somebody else and I don't want to be this anymore. It isn't mine. I have no reason to be angry. Then you can start working with them on that trauma. But if they say to you, I'm going to go back into that same environment and people all around me have addictions and people all around me have trauma, how am I going to go back there? Because if they do, their brain will like it. And their brain will go, ah, 
this is familiar. And your brain will reset and go right back to the old behaviors. That's why it is so difficult to get rid of our addictions because our brain is so familiar to those behaviors. So let me talk for a moment about how do we create new behaviors so that our brain can actually change and be successful? Very simple. Just like what I told you in the beginning. Our senses get us into trauma. Only our senses are going to get us out of trauma. So let's talk about that. So anybody, even if you don't have trauma, but your brain gets so conditioned to a certain behavior. And your brain doesn't want to change. It only wants to give you so it only wants to work so hard and it doesn't it doesn't want to change at all. So anytime you try something new, and you all know this, whether you have trauma or not now, but this works for trauma too. You try to change your brain because you're doing something the same every day over and over and over again. And you're getting pretty bored and tired of it. You're starting to lose interest in your job now. You're starting to lose interest in life. You retreat from the world because you wake up in the morning, have your breakfast, you go to work, you do all of the same things, you come back and you do exactly the same thing the next day. It becomes so routine over and over and over again. And no matter what you try to do, your brain keeps reverting back to that same old behavior. And it makes you feel terrible because you don't want to be doing the same things you're doing. You want to change something in your life. But you can't change your brain unless you do something different that's easy. I'm not talking about something difficult where you're successful doing it. Only being successful doing something new will change your brain. And you have to do it repetitively, just like the old behavior you had. Because now you have to get your brain to adopt the new behavior. And it won't adopt the new behavior unless it's repetitive and consistently you are successful doing it. So let me explain what that might look like. I used to always wonder when I work a lot in the Calgary Board of Education, and I used to always think um, when a child is having difficulty doing math, you send math homework home to them. And I used to say to the teachers, why are you doing that? The child has such trauma around doing math. They want to do math, and they can't. But they will if you quit sending math homework home and do something else first. We have to find something we're successful doing first and be successful doing it. And when you're successful doing it once, twice, maybe three times, all of a sudden, your brain, you see, has to use more energy now. And it's used to using more energy. And it gets easier and easier as you do more consistent, positive things to change your brain. Pretty soon, your brain is saying to you, ah, yes, I can. Not, no, I don't think so. So this is how simple it is. For example, the child has trouble doing math. Give that child something to take home if you really want to, uh, that he can be successful at. 
So maybe he likes to draw. So you could say to him, why don't you draw me a picture of what math looks like to you? And then you can explain that to me. And here's some crayons. Here's some, here's some Sharpies. You take these home and I'm going to give you paper. Draw me a picture of whatever you want, of what math looks like to you, or what it would look like to you if you could learn it. And that child, maybe he's eight or something, he draws beautiful pictures because he loves art, and you know that. And you say, I want you to bring them tomorrow now, and he brings them to you. And you go, that's wonderful. Tell me what this is. And you give him something similar to do again, maybe the next night or whatever. After about three times, you say to him, that's great. Now let's look at this one problem here. Math problem. You can do this. Because his brain already figured out that he can do something different. And now he can do that math problem. Don't give him a whole bunch. Give him one. So if we're going to change our brains, even from the trauma behaviors that we have, we have to figure out how to be happy in our lives. We have to do things that make us happy. Not addictive things. Not things that may hurt us. Not things that could cause harm to others. But things that are simple. Like... If you want to go on a diet, that's a big thing for people. And we try, it's January, Christmas is over, and we go, I gotta go on a diet. I ate so much chocolate. Oh, it was so good. But I've gained 10 pounds. I've gotta go on a diet. I feel so awful, because you do. You feel terrible when you all of a sudden find yourself in a position that you don't wanna be in. And you say, I'm gonna go on a diet. Worst thing you can do. You know why? Because your brain is going to tell you that chocolate tastes awfully good. And your brain, because it's lazy, already has a conditioned response to food and all of those things, is going to make it very difficult for you to stay on your diet. So you have to do something different before you go on a diet so that your brain knows you can do something different. So what if you walk and you walk out the door and, you, and you've never done that before. Just walking and ending up back at home, it's going to be uncomfortable. I can guarantee when you, you're going to figure out every reason not to walk. And you go out and you walk and you come back and you feel so good. And what happens at that point is you say, ah, I'm going to do it tomorrow. Well, your brain is going to say, I don't think so. And you've got to force yourself to do that. After you've done it three times, though, your brain starts to get used to it. And pretty soon you're going to go out that door and it's going to be easy, easy, right? Well, after a while, you start to go back into behavior again. So you walk out the door to walk now because that's become part of what you do. Go in a different direction. That's how simple it is. Change the direction. I can guarantee that you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to go, oh, maybe I should go that way. And you're going to feel, why? Because the cortisol is starting to come up in your body saying, are you sure you're safe going this direction? This is uncomfortable for me. I don't know this. And you go, no, I'll be okay. And you walk. After you go a little bit, all of a sudden you start to feel the cortisol coming down. You start to breathe. 
you start to get into your routine. By the time you get back to your space, you've been successful walking in a different direction. Guess what? You just changed your brain again. Now try something that you couldn't do. So trauma and the brain are very much related. And we know that when we have trauma, we inherit it or it's a learned behavior. And if we want to be able to support people and environments, we have to recognize it's not something that's wrong with us. Something has happened to create the behaviors that we have. And so we have to connect people to spirit first. By connecting people to spirit first, they are able to naturally drop into their prefrontal cortex, which is where we solve problems, which is where we learn. So it's very important to remember that trauma isn't cognitive first. It's by connecting people to spirit first, however that might look to them. To indigenous people, we use our culture. Our culture uses every one of our senses in our culture in a positive way. That's why it works. The drumming that we use actually balances left and right brain. It reprograms the brain. The smell of our, of our, our smudge triggers this positive memory in us, that smell. The songs we hear in our languages trigger what we hear in a positive way, what we see around us. Um, the outdoors, the medicines that we're seeing, that we're feeling, that we're smelling. All of, the, all of the senses that got us into trauma because they weren't good senses to us. What we saw wasn't good. What we heard wasn't good. What we smelled wasn't good. All of those senses turn into positive senses in our ceremonies, in our culture. That's why we know one of the few evidence-based research that we have seen with what is successful for Indigenous people is putting them into their culture, helping bring the culture back. Our traditional ways of knowing have been doing the same things for thousands of years. We know that our, the things that we do within our ceremonies, the songs, the medicines we use, the dances that we do, the drumming that we do. By the way, all cultures have drums. That must be a universal truth from our old people too, no matter where we come from. And we do know that there is research on drumming and reprogramming the brain. So I use drumming instead of EMDR. And so what we see is that culture is very, very helpful for Indigenous people. So here at the university, we have an incredible opportunity because we have elders here. We have an elder circle. We have ceremonies that go on. We offer indigenous ways of knowing. And that is to support people because as indigenous people, this is the land that we know, Mother Earth that we know. We know how to help people come to us. And we will support you no matter where you're coming from and help you connect to your way of knowing as well. So, thank you for having me today. It has been a great honor. I have a lot more to say about trauma. That's just a little bit to help you understand why we need to start using wellness. Why we need to start looking at creating that safety in those spaces which are ethical spaces around in the campus. 
why we have to recognize that trauma is curable and that we need to really assess for trauma first, not mental health. So thank you so much. I am in my lodge attached to the Faculty of Social Work. You're welcome to come and visit me sometime. That's in um, the third floor of McKimmy Tower, that beautiful new glass building. Uh, I welcome you to come and see us. And please uh, follow the Faculty of Social Work page. We offer all kinds of lunch and learns for about Indigenous ways of knowing for everyone and anyone to tune in. So if you're interested in learning more about Indigenous ways of knowing and trauma, uh, we offer that as our Lunch and Learns as well. So thank you, everyone. Uh, it has been quite an honor to speak today. Uh, Miigwech. Hi, hi, hi. No, we'd like to say thank you, Carrie. Um, I've never honestly learned so much about trauma. I feel like it's used. That word is just used. People use it. And like even the stuff that you learn. But no one has ever talked about it or dived in deep into the topic and what it does how it affects our bodies our future relationships our actions um even like our heritage which is like something that's kind of something that i learned new is that trauma is inherited and can be inherited which is i think a lot of it's a fact that not a lot of people know and i think it's worthwhile to know that if we don't work on our own concerns or own traumas in our own lifetime that it has a lot of future impacts which is nice to know yeah so i know you mentioned that you do like to use the word wellness to describe all the realm of mental health and what it means and i want to hear your insight into why that word carries such negative connotations with it and what you've learned from your experience as to why we should work towards changing um, the word. There are a lot of people uh, where the word mental health has a huge stigma attached to it because of our culture. Mm. So it isn't just indigenous people. We don't think of ourselves as just mentally uh, unwell. We recognize that um, what's happening in the environment is creating the ability for us not to be well. So there are many students, I am sure, that will not go uh, for help when it says mental health. They will go into, an, uh, an, into a place where it would say wellness because there's, there's no stigma attached to being, not being well because well could mean that you're not feeling well or you're, uh, you're struggling with anxiety or you're struggling with your partner, or whatever that might be. But all of those things don't mean that you're just mentally unwell. It affects your entire environment when you are not well. And so if we want to attract people to these tremendously wonderful uh, places at the university that are there to help, we have to recognize that we need to look at more than uh, mental health because we're not going to be able to help the people that really need help if that's the only thing we call ourselves. So I really have been looking at this and I ask people all the time, please don't use the word mental health, use the word wellness. And if you say we're here to do wellness support, uh, it means that we're here to help you in many different ways. Um, 
and um, people won't have the stigma attached to it. They're just going to a wellness center, which could mean that you're doing yoga that afternoon, right? Um, it sh- it has a wide connotation of of being a whole person as well, and we are not just cognitive people. We're not just mental people. That's the other term for cognitive, right? We are whole beings, and we have to be able to bring people to us without that stigma attached. So using wellness is something that we should be using. And I think with wellness, you just brought up that point where wellness can look like attending a yoga class. So it doesn't always have to be something that's like, um, I'm going to go meet a counselor perhaps, but it could be that, no, I'm actually going to go in and do a yoga class and do something for my body to feel better. I think wellness is a more overarching, well-rounded term to describe how one feels rather than mental health, which is just saying that something about that person's brain is off. And thanks for bringing up or the something's topic wrong of with seeing them. a counselor, because these days a lot of people go to therapy or see a counselor if they have problems regarding wellness. And it is becoming more and more popular. So Carrie, I wanted to ask you, what is your insight on therapy and how effective do you think it is when we're dealing with our traumas? Well, I think therapy is often a very necessary thing that we need to go to. I have nothing against therapy. Um, I think, however, we have to recognize that if we want sustainability through our therapeutic sessions, we have to look at the whole being again. And... um, uh, I, you know, I often say to people when they when they tell me, oh, our programs created such sustainability. People, when they attended this program for X amount of time or, or came to therapy for X amount of time, they felt so good. What we did at the beginning was we did a measure and we did a post measure and we see such incredible change. What does that look like two months later? Right? So that's not resilience. Everybody, that we know that the therapeutic relationship, just having somebody kind and loving that you can speak to is sometimes the greatest intervention you can have. But how sustainable is it? We need to create therapy, which is really going to help that individual be able to process through what they're doing and create the ability to take what they've learned into other areas of their life. That's resilience. And so therapy to me is not, sometimes we have to do crisis intervention. That's different. But most people go to therapy because they've had something that's been bothering them for a while. It's not something that's just happening. And and they want someone to help them get beyond that. And so we want them to get beyond that through many different ways of helping them, whatever that might look like. But we want to make sure it's sustainable because um, often people will go for counseling, they go home, they might feel great for a week or so, and then they go right back into the old behaviors. And then they think, well, what? it's not going to help me to go to therapy. I'm still where I was. We have to think about that in a different way, being more holistic about what is it we do to help that individual actually process what's happening in their life, what, what, are, what are they doing in their life, what do they need to change their life, and how do they do that with your help as well as doing it on their own. So we're trying to create in therapy, when people come to us very dependent, we're trying to get them to become independent. And after they become independent, we want them to become interdependent. 
so that they know I only I, I still need help. I'm not this person that can do this on my own. I still need help, but I only need it once a year just because I need somebody to reset my brain or whatever I'm doing. And then we finally get to a place of resilience where you actually see people taking what they have learned in therapy um, because they're feeling safe and you're doing all of those holistic things. And all of a sudden, you're seeing them doing, taking um, total control of their lives now. Um, and they've transferred what they've learned in, with you into that other area of their life lives now now they're working they have their family you know they're working with their family and they 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 maybe have looked for a job or they have figured out that they need a tutor they're figuring these things out on on their own and it's through the ability to see people going from dependence to independence to interdependence to resiliency uh that's how you measure whether they're changing how do you do that through story so i use story as um, a methodology tell me your story and i want to see that story change each time i see them and if it doesn't i remind them well what did you do yesterday well your story's changed and it's so the, the story becomes both a methodology and an evaluative process right to know how successful you are with that person and how successful that person is in their own life so you're kind of pointing at one thing that really under like I understood from what you were saying is that we um, as individuals kind of have to reflect back onto our I guess past childhood all our traumas and ref and be really reflective about it and not I guess see ourselves as a victim but to see ourselves as part of something bigger. Because like you said, you have to look at your environment and your behaviors and why did you act that certain way in that certain behavior? Not And it's not because you are that certain way. So I think like you're trying to say that with therapy, we should try to be more reflective about our surroundings rather than what we do on our own or like trying to look at us as if we're the problem. Because I feel like I've a lot of people with mental health concerns do that a, a lot too like if someone is feeling anxious one day it's like no i was feeling anxious because i suck at math i'm so bad at math i did bad on my math test but it's also that maybe you just don't understand math and that environment of learning math is not the one that you learned the best in so it's kind of changing the perspective on how you view yourself so having better self-talk do you think is another I guess, holistic I think, way um, too? wellness can be many wellness? of those things. And that was a really good way of putting it. Um, riding horseback can be a great way for wellness. If you get on that horse and you just feel so free and so at peace and so overwhelming and you know that that horse does not judge you and just looks at you and loves you. And, you know, cats and dogs can do that too, as well as playing basketball, right? I know kids that can say, when I'm playing basketball, I'm totally in a different space. And I say, where are you? I don't know. I'm somewhere, Carrie, where I just feel so free. And I say, well, I think you're in your spirit. So whatever you do in your life to help you be in your spirit gets you out of your trauma brain. And that's what we have to look at, because a lot of people have never been in their spirit for a long time. I think like uh, with modern um, things that are happening, like being a university student myself 
not anymore, but a past university student, I feel like that trauma brain carries on, like it carried on for me for like five years because you don't ever get that pause to sit there and reflect because you're forced to just keep on going, keep on going. And that's kind of what society pushes on you too, that if you do take time off, you're again, the victim, there's something wrong with you, you know? So you, you feel guilty again, taking time off to like, you know, work on yourself, work on whatever you need to. And I've, I've noticed like that trauma brain, it just continues on in life because if the world doesn't stop, that means we don't stop. Well, I think that's so, the other issue yeah. with the world, isn't it? Yeah. I think um, what I see, and we, we have these discussions quite a bit about how busy people are. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so busy that we don't ever get those breaks. Whatever happened to the times in our lives where we always had a, a morning coffee break and an afternoon coffee break and a whole lunch break? Um, we don't have that anymore. And I think the other, the, the way the world is going so quickly, it goes so quickly and we're expected to do all of these things because we allow it. And so you're young. You have the ability to change the world by saying, no, I'm taking my lunch break. No, I'm taking my 15-minute coffee break. I think we forget also we're living in such a fast-paced world. We want to be the best. We want to get ahead. Uh, But what that does to us is it makes us sick. And we have to be careful about that because we're human beings. We're not machines. And we have to be able to set our boundaries as well in our workplace. And so I would expect all of you being so young that you're going to do that because I am seeing something happened where the world became so busy that nobody takes care of themselves anymore. And so part of the whole phenomena of self-reflection is that we don't do self-reflection anymore. We don't even think about ourselves. And then we get angry at everybody else around us because we think, well, I'm already working so hard and that person wants me to do this. We have to be able, we're the only ones, we have to recognize when we're looking at healing and wellness in the world. Wellness in the world isn't just in us, it's in the world. How do we create wellness within our environments by setting our boundaries and saying, it's four o'clock, yeah. I'm the end of my shift. Yeah, time to go home, it's right? time to go home. I have family to go home to, right? And um, you have a right to uh, take those times for yourself. Um, and what happens when you do that, you'll feel a lot better about yourself. You actually create wellness within you. You'll, the stress levels will go down for one thing when you take those times. Because when you take that 15-minute coffee break in the morning, and you've just been going like crazy since 8 o'clock, and you go, what happens? Your cortisol levels come down. We have to bring our cortisol levels down over and over and over in the day. Otherwise, we're going to get burnout, or we're going to get compassion fatigue. We'll even get PTSD. There was a study done here at the university with frontline workers, over 200 of them, Um, and they wanted to determine in the workplace, what are they seeing more? Are they seeing burnout? Are they seeing compassion fatigue? Are they seeing something else? And 39% of the people they interviewed out of those 200 frontline workers across Alberta had PTSD. Yeah. 
So we have to be careful. Part of recognizing what wellness is, is that we have to create wellness environments so that when it's time for your coffee break, your manager doesn't say, well, wait, I need this letter done. And you could say, well, at, at uh, 10.30, when my coffee break's over, I'll be right there. Yeah, I know you mentioned the long term when you have cord high levels of cortisol for a super long time. Um, when that happens, what happens is that your brain structure also changes, which is bad because now your neurons that are firing, the pathways that are firing are not the good pathways. They're the bad pathways that take you down into even a more stressful situation. So I know like I actually teach this to kids a lot about the long-term effects of stress. And I ask them, I'm like, do you know what what is good stress? Like, have you seen good stress? And they're like, well, stress is stress. I don't think stress is positive. And I tell them, I'm like, well, if you have a quiz that's coming up or a job interview, it might be stressful, but isn't that a good stress that you have something to do? Because if we don't have stress in our lives, then we're couch potatoes. But then I also teach them that there's a difference between, let's say, having two weeks to study for a test versus a day. You know, that there's that difference between that good level of stress versus bad levels. And that when we have it and as you're growing up, our brain structures are changing so much that the neurons that fire or get really strong are all our bad pathways of our bad habits. And in order to change them, like you said, into our good habits, it takes more than that one, two, three attempt because now it's structured in our routine to do A to B to C, and it's hard to go from A to B to Z. Yeah, so I was talking about before, right? Uh, when I said do something different to change your brain, mm -hmm. what you're actually creating is positive stress. Because you go, I don't want to walk necessarily, right? Yeah. But you do it, and you'll feel very uncomfortable because your cortisol level comes up, and it's like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And you do it anyway, and you get all the way home, and you were successful and you feel really good. Yeah. So that's what we call positive stress. So this, the cortisol level only comes up for a little while until you get beyond it and then it goes down. Mm -hmm. And you have to have positive stress to change your brain. That's how you do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that leads us on to another interesting topic, which is realizing that your stress level is high because when you're working constantly and your stress level is constantly high and you're not paying attention to it, and therefore, you're not even aware that it's high because you've become so used to it and tuned to this way of life. So I think it's wonderful that we've taken the first step by bringing up this discussion of first being able to recognize our stressors. Because when we recognize that, we can work to reduce our cortisol levels and overall stress. I think it's because we think those high stress levels are normal. We've normalized being stressed out and always being on the go that like if we don't do the normal, then it's like, this is weird. Why am I sitting down watching Netflix all day? I wanted to right? ask another question focusing on how you think we can incorporate different perspectives about well-being, wellness and healing in both their healthcare practices and as well as our campus community. Because as you mentioned, the University of Calgary is very diverse. We have a lot of different people from different cultural backgrounds. And I'm not sure if we're taking that holistic perspective into account on our campus. I think 
the university is doing a lot of that already. I think um, I think the university takes into consideration many different cultures and provide um, certainly different supports, um, the ability for people to have their own spaces to do things depending on where they're coming from. So um, I know that they, the university also has yoga for people to do. I know that they they do different uh, different things to try and attract um, students um, to build a relationship. Um, I, I, I think the greatest difficulty that we have is to get people to build relationships with those, those things though. Um, so I think what we have to do is we have to be able to reach out to people and invite them with us because um, from my experience, People don't go to things by themselves. And so it takes different friends. And maybe what we have to do is we have to be able to go where different cultures are gathering within the school, because we do have different things like that, and say, uh, can you come with us tomorrow? This is what we're doing. We want everybody to be part of that. Can you can you speak to that? Um, I, I really think there are some people that are highly motivated to do a lot of different things in the community of of the university but there are others that don't feel like they like they know you well enough to do that or because of of you know a lot of the the discrimination and things that we see they don't want to go into a space where they don't know what it's there so i think we just have to keep creating um spaces that are ethical so people can come in maybe we what we need to do is we need to bring people from many different nations together to sit and do drum circles for example or something try to get them involved and then uh, and then talk about what's happening at the university and I know we do that on many levels but we're not reaching a lot of people I think that really need that and we do know for the wellness of people at the university part of that is to build a relationship or we're going to lose them. We, we don't have a lot of retention with people that don't build relationships at the university. So I think we just have to keep creating uh, fun social things to do where people feel really safe and have those conversations with people. This is what we're doing over here and this is come over to the Indigenous Lodge because they're doing ceremony and everybody's welcome, right? Because I know that when I meet people and I invite them personally, they come. But I, if I if I open it up and say, come, I don't get people, right? They want to know who you are. They want to know what you're doing. And um, despite the incredible um, activities that happen here, I think the people that really need it need to have other ways of people reaching out to them. Yeah. yeah. Not just like the one mode of communication. I agree. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you, I know you're like super passionate about being like trauma, healing people. Where did that passion in you come from? I think that's because there's that. a lot of trauma around me. Yes. And um, I I didn't want I didn't want to see that trauma around me and I and I could see how trauma got in the way of family, not necessarily mine, but all around me, right? I could see all kinds of things happening to people everywhere. And I wanted to make a difference. So people didn't have to have that trauma in their life and that anger and that anxiety and that depression. I wanted to be able to help people 
be whole so that um, with the greatest concern of making this world a better place. And I know that might sound a little bit, as I say, airy-fairy sometimes, right? But the reality of it is we want to make this world a better place. So uh, with, with people not understanding trauma, me not understanding trauma either, although I understood it as I got older, but um, it was re it's really important for us to let people know what trauma is because the greatest, the greatest, I guess, the greatest wall or barrier that gets between us and joy is the trauma in our environment or extreme stress, which can lead to trauma. So I wanted, to, I wanted people to find the joy in their life so that those little children that are in that family grow up with love and kindness without that anger and all of those things around them. Yeah. Was it hard for you to kind of combine like your personal experiences and I guess like wellness and like holistic measures into, I guess, when you were learning um, to bring that into your career? Like, did you find that it was difficult to do that initially or over time? Did you just well, it was harder when kind I of knew how to? I think because I didn't go to university till I was 50. So as you get older, people tend to listen to you more. So I think that was an easier thing for me to do. If I, if I had started to do that at 20, I think people would have gone, yeah, right. Yeah. But um, um, I had a lot of experience in the world by then, and I knew what worked and didn't work. And I'm also coming from a very cultural perspective. So I always had this as part of my life. I was so fortunate that my grandmother taught me a great deal about Mother Earth and healing and living with the world. And I grew up, I would say, I didn't feel I lived in the world because people were so different to me. I didn't see the world the way people saw the world, but I kept that part of it quiet. So I think as you get older, people listen to you more, as long as you don't come at them with anger. Yeah. I, had to, I had to work through that anger to be able to talk to people and say, well, let's try it this way. Yeah. Does you have to come from a place of kindness and let's work on it at the same time together. Yeah, I'm yeah. actually curious because from my understanding, um, you're the only trauma specialist that I know yes. on campus. What were people's initial reaction to these ideas? Well, I don't think I talk about my ideas very much unless people ask. All I know is that I do it and people... Uh, I used to work at Writing Symbols Lodge and the Native Center before that for 18 years here. Yeah. And I worked primarily with Indigenous students who would come to me and say, can't go over there, <laughs> I'm coming here. And I saw great changes in those students and I saw retention, which was really important. Um, and I still see a lot of those people who, um, whose kids are now going to university, right? And so, I'm not one of those people that talks about what I do, so I thank you for asking me about what I do. Um, I don't know if I'm the only trauma specialist here. I know that I practice trauma work in a very different way, perhaps, than a lot of people might, but I think there are other people like me out there that maybe they just do the work quietly. Because one of the things that you learn over time is if you do what works, but it isn't conforming to what people want you to do, keep quiet and just keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's always really insightful to hear a person's own journey.
And before we reach the end of our time here today, I wanted to ask one more question. If you could leave our listeners with one thought or one key takeaway from this episode, what would that be? I think we have to recognize that being in spirit makes us a whole being because everything else falls into place. So we have to find our way back to ourselves in order to be whole beings. So if people are listening and they are talking about or thinking about what what are you talking about breathing and being in your belly, um, those are the people that probably haven't been in their belly for a long time. When you're not in your belly button, people can control you and will do what other people want us to do rather than what we know is right. And so it's important to figure out what do we have to do to connect to our spirit every day, which is right, the location is where our belly button is, because that's where our values are. If we're not loving and kind human beings, we're not going to be very happy in the world. Wow, what a beautiful and wholesome response. I feel like connecting to ourselves, our spirit, as you mentioned, can be a very eye-opening experience. And I hope that for all of you listening today, today's podcast will motivate you to start a journey of self-discovery and self-compassion. And I believe that we can get caught up in the external world and sometimes forget to reflect on ourselves and our values. So I really appreciate your time today with us, Carrie. Today, we got an introduction to the immense topic on wellness, trauma and healing. And we would love to have you back on our podcast to further dissect these concepts. I would just like to echo what Nidhi said um Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really nice talking about trauma. And I've honestly never really talked about trauma in an open setting or open discussion like this ever. So it was really nice to just open that conversation up and learn how trauma can look different for everyone, essentially, and how it can manifest in our bodies and the way it manifests is different person to person as well. So thank you, Carrie, so much for joining us today. And I really hope Uh, We get you again on the podcast so we can kind of open up the discussion more and dive into topics a little bit more as well. Uh, But thank you so much. We want to thank CJSW, the Indigenous Global and Local Health Office, the Grandmother's Lounge, and lastly, the Writing Symbols Lodge for helping us kickstart this podcast. We couldn't have done this without your support and knowledge. Lastly, thank you to everyone who tuned in. Join us on CJSW, Spotify, and Apple Music for bi-weekly episodes on all topics healthcare with special guests and your two favorite hosts, Nidhi and Harveen. See you soon.